Well, welcome back to the Limehouse podcast. I hope you're doing well. I hope you've been reaching out to one another this hard time, uh, COVID time. And uh, I don't know, just uh, being nice to each other. You know, back rub here, a foot massage there. Uh, offering to cook a meal for ba- a baked beans on toast with a little bit of ex- extra cheese for, for, your, for your friend or your, your family member. You know, I mean, these things, these things go a long way. They really, really do. If you are new to the show, I apologise for my flippant, slightly eccentric introduction to the show. Uh, bear with me, it doesn't get better, but um, it's not for much longer. Put it that way, it's like a Ramones song. You might not like them all, but they're very short. Um, this week, Fraser Kane joins me. It's a wonderful conversation. I've, I've been into astronomy for a little while now. I wouldn't say a long time, on and off for about 10 years, but really properly getting into it over the past six months after listening to the Planet audiobook that is narrated by Sam West. Oh God, yes, that guy. That guy with the voice. I can't do an impression of his voice because it, you can't. You can't touch that voice. Samuel West, the actor. You can't touch that voice. Don't try it. Don't even think about it. Don't do an impression. Put the microphone down and go back to your normal voice. Um, it, it is... It's such a great book. And anyway, it, it got me thinking. Thinking about... That up there, you know? The stars at night. And I started Googling and what have you. And then I found this website, the universetoday.com. Universetoday.com. Which is created and loved very much by the wonderful Fraser Kane and and that's why he's on this show and I think it's it's one of those things where I'm just in awe of the guy for the whole episode but also kind kind of a little fanboy definitely I turned into a fanboy but I I hope that I, I I leave a little seed in your mind and and hopefully something happens for you to you know, have a stroll at night when the when the when the sky's clear, and you can really take yourself out of of the crap we're all going through. Because I suppose that's what I've been doing lately. If you follow me on Twitter, um, most nights I'll just sort of be saying something like, "Going to bed now," with the Planets audiobook and Samuel Sam West, uh, and it's wonderful. And and I suggest you do, I suggest you do the same. You know. What better way to fall asleep than by listening to things that are so mind-bogglingly incomprehensible, but also fascinating and soul-fulfilling? I mean, you know, what, what, what could be better? So do. Good. Check that book out, The Planets. And check out Fraser Kane's website, Universe Today. It's a good first step into astronomy. But um, yeah, before I go, uh, do check out my website. Why would you want to check out my website? Somedaysadiamonds.co.uk Because guys, what we're entering into right this second is a partnership of I give something to you and then you give something back to me um, by, by twiddling your thumbs on your phone and uh, typing in that website address, somedaysadiamonds.co.uk and taking a moment to watch my short film the name which is on there you can access episodes of the limehouse podcast on there and you can read the limehouse podcast blog you can also watch a comedy pilot that i did there as well there's so much <laughs> i'd say most of my creativity minus my music is on there so do check that out it really means a lot to me, you know, give and take and what have you. And it, you know, really, I'm not being flippant here and I don't want to go on about it because who wants an emotional wreck at this particular moment in time? You know, some guy in your ears begging with a slight undercurrent of desperation in there. But what I will say is it would mean a lot to me. Somedaysadiamonds.co.uk. Do go and check that out. It'd mean a lot. And we're on... Instagram, uh, we're, we're on Twitter, at LimehousePod. So yeah, reach out, have faith. 
Or was it reach out, touch face? Jesus. I've never given that much thought. But yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll see you soon. Look after yourselves. I'm three chapters into my new book, which is good. Uh, the book that I'm writing. And um, it's heavily inspired by the talented Mr. Ripley, that wonderful book by Patricia Highsmith. Um, I, 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 I'm thinking about putting episode, um, chapters up on, on my website, but I think maybe that's too premature and slightly crazy, but we'll see. Um, but yeah, enjoy this episode. It's a wonderful one. Astronomy, get into it. Open your mind. Give yourself something to look forward to every night. Yeah, except when it's cloudy, of course. I mean, that goes without saying. But uh, yeah, do you want to show? I, I, it's really funny to see you actually because I've, I've been, you know, on on on, on and off your YouTube channel for about the last. Well, once again, I'm gonna I'm gonna start my recording now. So just in case you have any okay, cool. use. Okay, so I'm recording my audio, and then I'll, okay, I'll give cool. you the audio after the conversation. Nice one, nice one. But yeah, no, I lo- I'm loving the posters in the background. <laughs> Mars, yeah, yeah. Pluto. I've I've been reading and list. I've been listening to your your podcast for for a long time, but I've um. Well, not a long time. That's a complete lie. Um, about three or four months. Three but I mean, I've been like before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dark. Yeah. But I have been cramming it like you wouldn't believe the past three or four months. Because once I got got word of it, found it, I was like, oh my god, this is because I, I'm I'm reading a book or I read a book every night before I go to bed. It's an audio book called um, The Planets. It's by Andrew Cohen and Brian Cox. Okay. Yeah. And, um, it's so damn good, you know. It's really good entry level uh, space science and what have you. So, I love it. But how did you get into all of this stuff, all this science stuff? Well, uh, man, I mean, like I've always been into space and astronomy. Even as mm. a as a young child, I was into um, into the night sky. I was fortunate. I lived in a on a place in Western Canada with nice dark skies, and we my parents were quite into it. We went and looked at lunar eclipses and meteor showers and and things like that um my parents told me about the you know they watched the moon landings and my dad uh, got me up early in the morning to watch the first launch of the space shuttle back in 1981 i built my own oh telescope my yeah i built my own telescope or sorry i bought my first telescope when i was uh like in my early teens uh when i was in high school i joined the journalism program for my high school and wrote a weekly or monthly column about space yeah. and astronomy so it's it's kind of it's sort of inevitable that i ended up with the career that i have today the weird part is that i took a side venture into computers programming into the business world and was able to sort of find my way back to my true love which is sharing my love of space and astronomy with people god man that's a lot to unpack right there yeah. But I mean, I'm quite interested because yeah, that's where the money is, you know, computers and what have you. So I, I get that you did that. And obviously you've got that kind of that um, that that kind of that switch or that 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 side of your brain is good at that kind of thing. I, like for me, obviously, I'm, you wouldn't know anything about me, but I'm a gardener. That's my my job. Um, I'm like literally, <laughs> I mean, there's, you know, opposite. Oh, me too. Stuff, me too. A, I mean, not for my job, but I'm an avid gardener, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're coming into that this this time of year, aren't we? It's like yeah, it's kind oh, of it's freezing. Yeah, oh, I love that. I love that sense of being overwhelmed, though, because it's, you spend so many months of just freezing your ass off. <laughs> but um, yeah. So your 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 dad, like, put, he you were asked, or sorry, you asked, or he put you in front of the uh, eighty one launch. Wh- which one was that? Anyway? He, he he woke me up and said, "There's something really important happening right now. You should come in and witness it." So yeah. Yeah, you can. Can you remember that moment, like him going, like, I only I, mean, I was ten at the time, so you oh, okay, know, yeah. So I wasn't I wasn't very old, but I definitely remember um, just getting up. He was quite excited about it, and and we sat you know on a, on a black and white television and watched the live, watched that first space shuttle take off. God. Because that that you're, you're you're desperately lucky there because I'm I'm 
I mean, because I, I obviously I didn't have that at all. It wasn't until I uh, many many years later I got in, uh, got into Brian Cox uh, and uh, the the there was a BBC documentary or I think a four or five part series that explored the solar system and and it was done in such a rock and roll way, right? Yeah. So glad, like so sexy, and and oh, who knew that's all you needed to do? Just basically, science was. And, you know, astronomy, whatever, was just so unbearably boring at school. In fact, we didn't even do astronomy hmm. at school. So that's that's how sad. No, it I was I was super um, into it. What you found boring, I found exciting. I had a I had there was a there's a book that came out when I was a kid called Our Universe. It was produced by Time Life. And, and a lot of people who were around at the time will know the the series had this really cool spaceship on the front. And and inside just was that sort of just all of the planets, all the stuff we knew about space and astronomy. And, and it, I, it was my favorite book, just dog-eared. I just ran through it again and again and again. And I remember being like five years old, maybe six years old, and and wanting to have my parents read it to me again and again. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's funny. Oh, you see, what what you just described there is exactly what I want my two daughters to do uh, to me. <laughs> yeah. like, seriously, I want nothing more. Either that or it's like um, I want to... To come and go, um, start talking to me about my football team. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I was able to. Uh, I was able to pay my dad back, which was nice. So back in 2011, was the the last launches of the space shuttle, and now as you know, my job as a space journalist, I was able mm. to bring. My dad's a professional photographer; is his job, and so I was able to get him uh, a press pass to Kennedy Space Center. And so we went down there in 2011 oh. for the, the second to last space shuttle launch. Got to be on the Cape and see the shuttle and and see the, all the facilities. Unfortunately, it had a problem with its tank. And so we weren't able to actually watch it launch, but we were able to be there <laughs> and then uh, sort of come home as it were. And and then we had we could only hang around for about a week while they waited for delays. And then we had to come back because you know you learn in this trade that you never book your return flight from a rocket launch. Bit. I bet isn't it like it can't it can't be more than like four miles an hour the wind or something crazy. Well, there's I, all kinds of, there's all up? kinds of reasons. I mean, there's a thousand yeah. reasons why they'll they'll scrub a launch, and they're yeah. always erring on the side of safety, especially with the did, space shuttle. Does it ever like an astronaut who goes, no, no, I'm not feeling it, but, but why? Why? What's the matter? I just don't know. We just can't do it today, okay? Well, you, okay? you talk to astronauts, and they do not enjoy the process of flying to space. It is terrifying. Uh, and the and the process of returning from space. They love they love the being in space part, but even that is a little un, unsettling. Um, but they they do not enjoy the flight for the most part. It is it is oh. as scary as anything you can do, and they're deeply aware of it. But they're professionals, and they understand that it's a risk and they take the risk. But no, it's funny. You you know, in the beginning, you're like with wide eyes. I was like, is it is it super cool? Do you really enjoy it? And they're like, no, <laughs> we do not enjoy, you know. No, you you are aware that you are sitting on top of a bomb and you and and the fact of the, you know, your 14, your 14 uh, astronauts who have passed away in that vehicle is, yeah. is in the forefront of your mind as you go through this process of going to space yeah i mean, it's, it's just a very very extreme version of uh, being a pilot uh flying a plane i was just i, I obviously you know it, it, it's, it's it's way less complex and obviously there's not this the training isn't quite as severe quite anywhere near but you know it, it's i can't imagine what that must be like i, I do you know what? i haven't even i haven't well, even thought about that yet well i mean it's 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 really important to sort of wrap your head around the scale the the, the energies involved like like when an airplane takes off and flies around, I mean, you know, you can, we saw what the Wright brothers did. You can, you can, even a modern jet aircraft is, is using oxygen from the environment to, to combust a fuel and, and throw it out the back and the air, and the airplane goes a thousand kilometers an hour. But a rocket has to go from zero to 28,000 kilometers an hour in eight minutes. And the and wow. all of the rocket is explosive fuel that that in any condition that thing is a bomb and the only way that you don't turn it into a bomb is you very carefully at the exact right pressure mix all of the different the fuels and oxidizers together to produce the thrust 
that's, that is pushing you away from the earth faster than the earth is trying to pull you back down. And it's this balance that you're able to ride to space. And so, you know, we're, even now as we're entering this age of possible reusable rockets, there will never be a time when, when flying to space is a safe endeavor. It is always going to be right at the cutting edge with the current fuels, right at the cutting edge of, of what is just humanly possible. It's kind of a miracle that we can even make it to space in the first place. I know, but I think it's like that whole Goldilocks thing, isn't it? It's like not only is this planet in the precise part of the solar system that supports us and created us, but also <laughs> enables us to beat out our own atmosphere, which is extraordinary, and, and, and sort of get out and to explore the universe. Yeah, just barely. Like if the, if the <laughs> Earth were any more massive, it would be pretty much impossible for us to, to have any kind of spaceflight. So can you explain that to, to, to people that wouldn't know what the hell we're talking about? Sure. The, well, the, the idea, it's called the rocket equation. It's this idea of how much fuel, you know, as you try to fly to space, you have to use fuel. But to get that fuel up into the air, you have to use more fuel. And to get that fuel up into the air, you have to use more fuel. And so when you take a typical rocket and you break it down into its component parts, 95% of it is fuel. And then surrounding that is the is the fuel tanks and the rocket engines and the and all of the superstructure that's designed to hold this thing up. And so when you think about the payload, it's a tiny, teeny tiny fraction of the overall mass of the of the rocket itself. And if you change the force of gravity that you're trying to launch from in any significant way, the rocket equation goes out beyond the point that you can actually design a rocket to to handle. And so we're very fortunate because the force of gravity on the Earth is sort of just barely uh, possible to be able to escape using chemical rockets. And and so, um, again, when you when you launch a rocket, that thing is really just all fuel with a tiny little bit. Yeah. that's not right. So <laughs> right at the top. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's it's extraordinary, isn't it? And um, it it does it just fills me with a little bit of joy, actually, to be honest, because I know it's something that fills me with wonder, and I'm ne I'll never have to do it. But then again, I think cage, you know, see, I see people cage diving with sharks. I think, wow, that's amazing. But I'm never going to do it. It's not the same thing, obviously. But I mean, this is we're talking about feats of like human endeavor that are beyond not our comprehension, but certainly beyond our I don't know our little. Uh, I don't know what we can possibly do in our own little worlds, but because you know, you start with talking about rockets here, which is a pretty cool place to start, um, and and then maybe delve into moon, the moon and Mars and all that, and on and on, onwards and up, upwards. But what 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 really interests me, and this is good f for this conversation, is because I've just started really getting back into um, space science. What well, space science? But you know. Um, astronomy what have you and my the love of the love for, for the the planets comes from jupiter that, that's for me that is my I, I mean obviously there are many reasons why we'll probably get into that why jupiter i find so incredibly fascinating um but what was your saturn what was your entry it was saturn oh yeah saturn yeah absolutely yeah. um especially when you see saturn in a telescope for the first time that is mind-blowing um, I, I love the experience of, of like setting up a telescope on the street, this, this idea of sidewalk astronomy, and then having people come over and, and take a look through the, through the telescope. And, and I always like to ask, like, have you ever used a telescope before? Have you ever looked at the space before? And, 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 when, and so when people haven't, and they see, say, Saturn for the first time, and you can actually see the ball of the planet. You can see the rings. You can see the little, yeah. the little gap in the rings, depending on how how powerful your telescope is. It just it just blows people's minds, and they can't believe this thing that they've seen pictures of. They they know spacecraft and the Hubble Space Telescope have taken pictures of this thing, but for them to be able to experience and witness it with their own eyes is just a really deeply moving experience. And I love to to be there at the moment when they see it they experience it and you're just like now you get why i find this so wonderful and so fascinating because there's just uh, yeah. few fields that you know when you think about the theoretical physicists or the mathematicians or the you know the chemists and all that it's it's you're experiencing the world through 
math and theories and so on. But with astronomy, it's one of these ones that you can make direct observations of the things that we talk about and use those to tie to our just understanding of the universe. So what, how old were you when that happened? And, and, and what, who did, you, obviously, did you buy that um, uh, a telescope or were you, did you loan it? How, what happened? Yeah, I bought it. I had always been into astronomy and I think I was probably 13 years old or something like that. And it occurred to me that now is the time to get, actually what, what had happened was uh, there was like a garage sale and somebody was selling off hundreds of copies of Sky and Telescope and Astronomy Magazine. They just had boxes and boxes of them. And so I picked them up for a song and I had them in my room <laughs> and I was looking through them for for like a year. And they all had pages of ads for telescopes and they're all way too expensive. I was finally able to find yeah. a company in Vancouver that had a, a four inch uh, Newtonian telescope that I was able to buy within the amount of money that I could save up at the time. And you know, I knew I didn't want to get some crappy telescope from a department store. I knew I wanted a good telescope, but I couldn't afford a great telescope. And so yeah. I was able to buy the telescope. I think I, I recall us actually going to Vancouver to to pick up the telescope, but that could be just my memory. But maybe it was shipped to me. But <laughs> but but yeah, it was a it was a it was a very meaningful purchase in my life. Yeah, like yeah, I know. I mean, I didn't have a, my first meaningful purchase was my Fender Stratocaster, <laughs> and uh, and I still I still like genuinely I feel like that is one of the legitimate things I've ever splurged on in terms of rock and roll. But I suppose your rock and roll was was the stars and, and what have you. Um, and I, I, I just love that so much. It's so, um, it's, it's so romantic. But what? Um, so you, I just want to like get engaged with your boy, your your with boyhood Fraser, and, and think about uh, what were those emotions when you first saw Saturn, and is it a little bit like seeing going to see Aerosmith for the first time after you know <laughs> listening to their records for like five years when you were a kid or whatever? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, my experience or my my instinct is always to share what I'm seeing. And so the first thing that I did would be to, was to call my dad over and, and start finding these objects and, and show him the, what we were, what I was finding as I was gaining more and more knowledge of the, of the night sky. And again, you know, my dad had been to, into astronomy his whole life. I don't think he'd ever owned a telescope, but, but he was quite familiar and where we lived, you could see the constellations. He taught me a lot of the, my first constellations, the Big Dipper and, mm. right, I mean, Big Dipper isn't a constellation, but um, Orion, <laughs> et cetera. Yeah. And yeah. to kind of go through that process with him. And so then I would do things like he would have a party and I would set up my telescope and, and then usher people from his party to the telescope one by one to show them the various objects in the night sky, which, you know, is a very nerdy thing to do at a, at a party. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. Oh man. That's a, that's a, I can, I can, I, I can't, I can't, I can relate to it in a way. I can definitely see you doing that. Yeah. I mean, um, the through line, I mean, the through line for me, like if you like, just look at all the work that I do through astronomy cast, through my own podcast, through my videos, everything is just like, I just, want as many people as possible to to be in enthusiastic about what i'm seeing to get why i love this stuff so much and to and to be excited about about what we're seeing in the universe and okay then so what what's the significance then why do you think that's important for people I, I, to do well I, well i mean i don't know why i do it like I think it's not just necessarily like, why you yeah, do it. Yeah, no, but no like, for sure. But why but, and so then yeah. so I mean like I mean so so I don't know if I can stop it. Like I think it's my <laughs> right? Like I think it's just it's my number one instinct. Like it like yeah. if I discover something really interesting, I want other people to be as excited about it as possible. I want yeah. to and and that can come off as annoying for sure you know <laughs> unwarranted science um you know yeah. uh discoveries but you know so you have to channel it into into a field where it's where it's well received right and so if, if, if people if you if you yeah. didn't have the ability to channel it then would yeah, come yeah, out and I some would be insufferable. Sick yeah, way. My, yeah my wife yeah, would yeah. like yes Fraser yes <laughs> yes it's Saturn yeah. yeah I get it I've seen it um <laughs> So, so I, so, I mean, what is the value of, of this? Well, I, I mean, there might be no value. Like, I think, I think that curiosity and 
wondering about the universe is is its own reward that that curiosity seems to always be a good trait to have to be curious and with curiosity brings skepticism which tempers the curiosity um and i think those those two play very you know very strong role in in i think a well-lived life and so mm. i do think that um that that having these questions having being able to see these things being able to to you know sort of the, think about the grandeur of of what it is that you're looking at um gives you perspective it helps you sort of think about our place in the universe and sort of then how that relates to what you're going through on in your regular daily life i mean i think it's a yeah. it's a feeling that humanity has always been craving this this idea of there being something out there that's vast and bigger than you and mm. and you try for a moment to hold it in your brain and you can't but just you get a chance to to be there for a second thinking about it yeah. so i think that's all um it's a very natural instinct to wonder and i think astronomy is one of those few fields where it can step up to the plate and be as gigantic and mysterious and all encompassing as as you would hope it, you know something could be i don't think it's disappointing is it there's there's no real disappointment in in, in no the universe never mean, fails to disappoint yeah it gets it's always right. it's always as, as they say right it's not only you know the universe is weirder than we can conceive and every time the and, universe just keeps surprising us with new and bizarre things that it's able to do I know, and I think mankind's like that. I think you know, the more we find out, the more we strive to 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 go and find out. Well, well, what more then? You know, none yeah. of the, that question is just going to keep driving us on. That's what's so exciting about space exploration. It is, it is deeply satisfying. Like I know, for some people, having the answer makes them happy, and mm. and for me, having the question makes me happy. And if the answer bifurcates into two new questions or five new questions or a hundred new questions, then now I'm even happier because now I'm able to ask <laughs> even more fascinating fundamental questions. And, you know, we know that we can't get to the bottom of them. We can't answer them all. And I think that's, that's great. I love it. I love, I don't need, I don't need closure. I need, yeah. I need openings. <laughs> I need, right. That's what I need. I don't need I'm right. I don't, I mean, save from the fact that it's it's just mathematically impossible to to for that to ever happen, but you know, if it were to happen, my God, it'd be the saddest day. Earth. It'd be weird, wouldn't it? It'd yeah, like yeah. We've, sadness. Oh, we've learned everything. Yeah. I mean, it's all wow. like with romance, you know. We, yeah. we we kind of like we're satisfied with um, you know finding our our wives or our girlfriends or our boyfriends or our husbands or whatever, um, but and that that boom, full stop. And obviously relationships evolve and stuff, but with, with stuff like that, you don't want, you don't want that to end and no. it's not going to, so that's no. great. No, no, for sure. It's this, it, I always liken this to a sports ball game um, where you, you don't know how, you know, you may have a team that you support and, and you are there for the journey and they may win and they may lose but over time you learn the details you learn about this player and that player and their abilities and their weaknesses and you learn about the times that they've played against that team or this team and and the different outcomes that have happened and your mind starts to 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 fill in all the pieces you gain this very deep understanding of of what you're looking at and yeah. and for me this process of science of of uncovering you know answering these questions to gain new questions is that same process that we are we are watching it unfold for a lot of people they get that out of watching sports or watching a television show or watching a movie or or whatever reading a book and and for me it's that same process the more you learn about like like as you move from 
all like science fiction is your on-ramp to this stuff which is like you know wouldn't it be yeah. cool if people were zipping around the universe in their warp drives and teleporting down and meeting aliens <laughs> and so on and, you know and then after a while you're like well where's my warp drive well there's no such thing as a warp drive but here's why and it's all comes with relativity and here's how the speed of light works and time dilation and you're like okay that's all yeah. interesting um and so i find <laughs> that 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 once you start to understand the pieces then each incremental improvement that gets made each discovery adds to the story in your mind and you're watching this in real time it's like a it's like a soap opera that just that will never end i know and 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 i think you just um what you kind of have to get used to is is putting everything getting used to the numbers right the distances and 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 what have you because that's extraordinary once you get your head around that or once you get your head around the fact that that really big thing in this in the sky at night that's really bright is actually dead it's been dead for like a billion years and it's still making its way the light still make its way towards us so you know get that in your head if you can compute that then great but um so talk to me about saturn and and like i mean i know like because the rings obviously and seeing that for the first time blow anyone's mind i, I can't i'm getting i'm 40 i'm 40 in august so i'm getting a telescope for my 40th oh good and i good. cannot i can't wait get a, get a dobsonian Get an okay. eight-inch Dobsonian. Okay, is, yeah. that's eight. Is that is that good? Is that? Yeah, is, I yeah, don't know what, yeah. It's yeah. the right size. Okay. Bigger doesn't give yeah. you a much better view, but a Dobsonian is just sort of like the simplest telescope, but very powerful, easy to use, easy to point at some, some bright object in the sky and go, "What's that?" And then you point the telescope at it. So it's sort of like best bang for your buck. And not and for anybody else, but. Because uh, uh, there are there are gonna be other people that are like oh ooh, 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 slow down and how much how much would that what's the retail on that in in, um, in, in, in I, mean, I, don't know. I mean typically a, an eight inch Dobsonian will run you about three hundred to five hundred dollars. Okay, so yeah, that's, that's about in my. Yeah, that's typically what people are looking to spend for their first serious telescope, and it's a it's a lot of telescope. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of telescopes. Yeah. So why Saturn? Thanks, I mean, yeah, why Saturn? Well, I mean, I would say it's it really is ninety nine percent looking at Saturn and seeing the rings. Like that is, and then and and the planet itself, meh. It's a you know, it's a ball <laughs> of hydrogen and helium. Uh, the rings are cool. That you've got this really yeah. cool um, water ice bands that are surrounding the planet, and where they came from is still a bit of a mystery. Although that's starting to be answered now. The moons are are really where the action is with with Saturn. Uh, two are are most interesting. Titan, which is one of the largest moons in the solar system, is just like nothing else that we have. It's this it's this bizarre world that's that's big, has a very thick atmosphere, like one and a half times as dense as the Earth's atmosphere. And so you could walk on Titan and you wouldn't need a spacesuit, but it's bitterly cold, so you wouldn't need a coat. And you would need a way to breathe because the the atmosphere is is not, you know, is not what we could breathe here oh, on good. Earth. Um, but then the surface is covered in in hydrocarbons. You've got lakes filled with methane and ethane, and 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 so if you like could somehow bring that stuff back to Earth, it would all light on fire. And that's surrounding yeah. a thick uh, sheet of of water ice, and then under that is probably a liquid ocean. Uh, so Titan, Titan is absolutely fascinating, and then there are some really interesting ideas. To there's a there's a mission in the works to send a, a helicopter to Titan, which is going to be pretty exciting. Um, and then the other one is Enceladus, <laughs> okay. where you see this this icy moon with cracks at its uh, at its southern pole, and you've got water ice geysers just blasting out of of Enceladus into space. Furthermore, uh, so we know there's some kind of vast reservoir of water underneath the ice on, on Enceladus. And in fact, astronomers have detected hydrogen gas, which is the food for bacteria here on Earth. And so you've really got all of the conditions for what could harbor life in a place that's completely alien to the surface of the Earth. So, so again, yeah, sort so of those are such fascinating places. Well, the sun has to get start dying and then uh, and then warming shit up and then away we go yeah i mean and and what amazes me about um enceladus is the um yeah, not only you know there's like this the and titan that you know that it could happen it could i mean we'll we'll be long burned and dead by then but yeah. you know it could happen yeah um, there will the, be a the, time I, I don't know if enceladus mm. will fully melt but there will definitely be a time when jupiter's moons are mm. close enough to the sun that they all melt. 
So Europa, Ganymede, um, Callisto, for sure, will all will all melt and will be water worlds. So is it is it tidal is it tidal gravity that that creates these sort of these the the the, the water underneath um, Enceladus and what have you to to to, to yeah. exist? Yeah, it's and it's, could it's you could you explain tidal gravity a bit because I find it absolutely fascinating. Sure, I mean you can you can kind of go through this a little bit. So what's happening is that. Um, that Jupiter or or Saturn or even the Earth and the Moon, but let's go with say Jupiter. Jupiter is is tugging at these at these moons. Uh, Io is the one that's closest, and it's essentially squeezing the planet with its gravity, and and that's causing it to sort of heat up. And a good example is like I don't know if you've ever taken like a like a paperclip and you sort of bend the paperclip back and forth and it starts to heat up as you as you move it and so you've got this these sort of interactions inside the planet or inside the moon that are heating it up to the point that with io because it's so close to jupiter it's actually blasting out um it's got the it's the most volcanic moon in the solar system it's got just hundreds of active volcanoes across the surface and europa is a little farther away from jupiter and so it's still experiencing that tidal flexing but it's it's less extreme and so with with europa it's liquefying you know keeping this vast ice ocean liquid underneath the surface then you go farther out um with Ganymede and Callisto, the same thing's happening, but just to le- to a lesser degree. The the crust is thicker, the the water is deeper down, but it's still happening. And the same thing's happening with really with with all of the giant planets and their large moons. You've got these tidal interactions, and and astronomers at this point really kind of think that 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 these are this is the most common place where there's liquid water in the universe is these icy objects orbiting giant planets or possibly other you know stars and that the vast amount of places where life could form is going to be under the ice in in distant parts of the of the milky way but also the most difficult place to explore it's almost impossible to to explore it and so it's kind of ironic yeah what's it going to take like eight years to get there right or something crazy yeah just to get to i mean to get to titan for sure it's like it's like a three-year journey to get out to jupiter and to to send a, a mission to europa much longer to get all the way out to Saturn and Titan. I mean that. So I think that's what freaks most people out, and I think it freaks me out to a certain degree. I mean, is that is that a spacecraft traveling like what twenty three kilometers an hour or something, and it's still gonna only just gonna take them freaking eight years or whatever? It's yeah, just yeah. Blowing. I mean the the fastest spacecraft ever sent from Earth in the beginning was the um, the New Horizons spacecraft going out to Pluto, and it still took ten years to make this journey. It did a flyby of Jupiter to gain a speed boost. Um, and it still was just an, an insanely long adventure to get all the way out there. Yeah, the the exploration of the outer solar system, because you've got that enormous lag time from when you launch your spacecraft to when you actually arrive, it, it makes it very frustrating because apart from, like there are, there's one spacecraft at Jupiter right now with Juno there's two missions in the works right now, um, the European mission JUICE as well as the Europa Clipper, but they're going to reach Europa in the 2030s. And then you've got the Titan Dragonfly, which is going to be flying out to, <laughs> back out to Saturn, and that's going to be again in the 2030s. And there's like maybe yeah. some, some missions being thought of to go to Neptune and Uranus, but we're looking in the 2040s for that kind of stuff to happen. So better be patient. 40 now, God, I, you know, you gotta, you'll be in your 60s when this stuff starts to happen. And I suppose then it would lead us to the other form of exploration of, of, of planets, which is um, obviously the, you know, supermassive and giant gargantuan, uh, whatever their names are, uh, telescopes mm-hmm. um, being, being built and what have you. Um, and they, they, li- they literally are given those, those names, aren't they? They're like the... Yeah, yeah. The, the largest telescope right now is called the Very Large Telescope. And the, <laughs> and the one that's being built right now is called the Extremely Large Telescope. And the, uh, and the one that was cancelled but was going to be built after that was called the Overwhelmingly Large Telescope. So, yes, yeah. yeah. But you, you, you reckon it's a really cool idea to build a, a great big uh, telescope on the moon, right? Um, only, there's only one version that really makes sense, which is to build a radio telescope on the moon. Today, you could, put a, you could build a radio telescope relatively inexpensively on the far side of the moon. Where, mm. but and it would allow you to sort of see the signal of hydrogen from the very beginning of the universe, 
uh, as well as be able to detect um, magnetospheres around other planets. But, but no, the best place to build a really big telescope is just in space. You don't, you don't need gravity. You don't want gravity. You want no gravity. Um, the limit of the size of a telescope here on Earth is just how big you can make it. It's just the, the force of gravity pulling down all of the struts and structures. And so if you can build it in space, then there's literally no limit to how big you can build your telescope. And God, how far, how far you see. When you just touched on there, the, the hydrogen, sorry, the hydrogen gas uh, that was formed at the, the start of the Big Bang. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. well, can you explain... Yeah. Because, again, we're just opening up can of worm after can of worms here, dude. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. that is kind of messing with my head a bit and probably everyone else's. So what, what was that? What's that all about? Well, I mean, oh, man, like, like explain the Big Bang. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, okay, come so, on, Fraser. Yeah, no problem. I can do it. Um, so we look at the universe around us today and we see that all of the galaxies are mostly moving away from us. And so if you then run the clock backwards, you can imagine that the, the galaxies at a time in billions of years ago were closer together. And if you run the clock backwards, eventually the galaxies were all together. Mm. And as well, we see fairly evolved galaxies today. And so you can kind of imagine that the galaxies were less evolved in the past and primordial shortly after the beginning of the universe. And if you sort of do your math right, you come to the calculation that approximately 13.7 billion years ago, all of the matter that is now speeding away from itself was all located in the same spot. And so that is the idea of the, of the Big Bang, that, that all, the entire observable universe that we see today was once located in this one area. And the best piece of evidence that we have that this Big Bang happened was this idea of there being kind of like a leftover glow. Like, like there was a time when all of the matter that's in the, in the observable universe today was compressed together so closely that it was ionized. It was like the interior of a star. And so no light could actually go out and escape. And, and so you have this idea that there was just this primordial hydrogen that was just formed from the beginning of the universe. That was the only element. And then the entire universe was sort of like one big star. And inside it, it was everywhere. It was turning hydrogen into helium, like the inside of the star does, as well as a little bit of lithium and, and some other elements with right. fusion. Yeah. And so the entire universe was like one big star. But then the universe cooled down to the point that that fusion process stopped. And then the universe cooled down even more to the point that it stopped being ionized and radiation was able to escape into the universe for the first time. And so when astronomers look in all directions with their telescopes, they're able to see this light, this first light that came from the universe when the entire universe was able to release light for the first time. And so at that point, all, that was, all there was in the universe was hydrogen and helium the, the hydrogen created during the Big Bang, the helium created during this time when the universe was like a big star, the leftover elements, the lithium, et cetera. And so the sort of one of the biggest lines of evidence that, that the Big Bang is a thing, that this actually happened, is that this signal is there, that if you look at the right temperature, you see this glow from the universe from literally every part of space where that light has been traveling for 13.7 billion years to reach is, our sensors. And so is that infrared? Is it, what, how is that? Is well, that so, well, the universe is expanding, and so light waves are expanding with it. And so mm. when the universe first formed, it was incomprehensibly hot, and then it cooled down and cooled down. And when it got to about the temperature of a red giant star, when it got to about... Um, about 3,000 Kelvin, the, that was the point where it had cooled down to the point that the light could escape. And so if you could have been around then, the universe would have been about 3,000 degrees um, and, and red. But then the expansion of the universe has stretched out the wavelengths of this light to the point okay. that, that we now see it in the microwave spectrum. And over time, future astronomers will see it far into the radio end of the spectrum over time as, as the wavelengths of the photons just keep getting stretched and stretched. And the part that's amazing is like 
every year that goes by, you're seeing this first light from a region of the universe that's one light year farther away. That's, you know, you're, you're constantly seeing brand new light from, from the universe, this cosmic microwave background. That's extraordinary. I mean, there you go. I mean, that's just, oh, I used to get anxiety with this kind of stuff. I really did. I used to suffer from anxiety because my brain couldn't keep up with it. And I think it just used to scare me because it used to question, I think it was the incomprehensive, the, the incomprehensive nature of all this. It's like, it's, you know, to you, obviously it's not, but to a layman, it's like, like myself, it's just a little bit, at times it's too much, but it's, but that doesn't scare me. I don't know why I was ever scared. I'm just full of wonder now. It's, yeah. I'm, 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 glad, I'm glad now. I mean, I think it's, I mean, just to use your gardening analogy, right? Like when you try to plant plants in your garden, you come with all this enthusiasm. You're like, I'm going to grow watermelons and I'm going to grow, you know, all of this really <laughs> exotic stuff and it all doesn't succeed and and you have a few successes maybe because you got lucky because you sort of bought the first soil that was really nutrient rich and then after a while the the <laughs> years after that you haven't been feeding the soil and it gets a lot more nutrient poor and you learn bit by bit what each plant you're like i like this plant i don't like that plant this plant works well that plant doesn't work well this plant yes. i like this variation of that plant and even your plants are starting to adapt as you plant seeds every year they're adapting to your own microbiome and so you're just learning all the details and through learning mm -hmm. the details is when you really gain interesting knowledge about about what it is you're working on it's that same thing a person plays a really complicated video game for the first time and it's overwhelming or you start right. a new hobby and it's overwhelming yeah. and the same thing with with just attempting to understand the current state of the universe is overwhelming mm -hmm. and yet if you are interested then then bit by bit the pieces will lock together in your mind like little puzzle pieces until you are you're up to speed but you're not, and you're not overwhelmed you're you're puzzled by by right, the state yeah. of reality but it, but at least you're not overwhelmed by everything that there is to to try to know you you're able to compartmentalize nicely and it's so, so deeply rewarding but what i what i'd love to because we've only got 18 minutes left damn it um this is going this is possibly the quickest it you've ever been involved with it feels like it's oh my god this is just this is so much i'm loving this so much but the um i suppose what i want to touch on before we quit would, would be the um perseverance mars and just the history of of planet earth and in terms of uh, the role that jupiter had in that coming in uh, and saturn sucking it back out again um and just throwing uh, all kinds of matter at the earth to make it, I don't know, water ice and all that kind of jazz. Like what, what was the... So, so did you I, want to did, talk about perseverance or did you want to talk about... I, did, I, I think we'll talk about perseverance last. Okay, sure. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, save the best till last. Although, you know, the, sure. the history of, of earth isn't yeah, yeah, too yeah. boring. Yeah, well, I mean, the, I mean, I think... Whether Jupiter has been our friend or our enemy is still a, an Up open debate. debate. Yeah, there's yeah. You know, some people think, oh, Jupiter is like this giant vacuum cleaner that has sucked up all of the asteroid debris that would have hit Earth. And there's been a really compelling case to be made. No, in fact, Jupiter has deflected a ton of rocks in our direction. And in fact, all of the near-Earth asteroids that we experience all the time, there are, whatever, 30,000 asteroids that routinely come very close to the Earth's orbit that astronomers have calculated so far, just big ones. Um, these have all been driven into the inner solar system by Jupiter's gravity. And so, and it doesn't take them long. You know, Jupiter is, the Earth and interactions between Earth and Jupiter and, and the asteroid belt is sort of every million years or so a rock shifts into this trajectory and so um or lasts for about a million years to go through this process and so we're we're kind of constantly receiving all the stuff that jupiter is kicking out of its orbit in our direction um and that must have been worse in the inner in in the early solar system when there was a lot more objects that hadn't found their final home <laughs> had crashed into something and so we can yeah. see the we can see the brutal damage that the moon has taken early yeah. on in its history yeah. and even the very existence of the moon is the understanding that something very mars-sized crashed into the earth 
billions of years ago, shortly after the formation of the solar system. And so it's a, it's a less dangerous place today, but still sort of constantly dangerous. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, because, yeah, so is there any, is there much wide ranging debate about the formation of, of, of the earth or whether it was a collision between two, I don't know, two planets coming together? What's the, what's the, what's, what's your understanding? Let's, well, let's I mean, go there. Right, right now, I think, you know, again, I'm, you know, I'm a journalist, not a geologist, but um, the sort of current evidence is definitely pointing in the fact that that at some point in the ancient past, some Mars-sized object crashed into the Earth, and that process, the debris that was kicked out, turned, you know, collected together into the Moon as we know it today. And in fact, there's some really interesting research that came out just a couple of weeks ago that that. Um, geologists have found what looks like weird blobs inside the earth of like a different density. And so the thinking is that those blobs might actually be remnants of the planetoid that crashed into the earth back in the day oh and God. haven't been fully digested yet. So it's sort of, <laughs> sort of shifting around inside the planet. Like, um, like, um, like, uh, who's the dude, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Not Robert Downey Jr. Oh my God. Who plays a guy in, um, Oh my God! He has the heart, and he has to the the little bits of metal that going towards his heart. So he yeah, has that's to have the magnet. Man, that keeps... Yeah, that's Iron Man. Yeah. Right, yeah. Iron Man. Yeah. God damn it! Yeah. Like, oh my God! The Earth is Iron Man. How yeah, fascinating! Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or like you know, you drop a piece of chocolate into into something that's warm, and you you know, as you stir it up, the chocolate slowly starts to melt, and so they can still yeah. see that there 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 are these blobs. But I mean, one of the most amazing discoveries made during the Apollo missions when the astronauts um, were up on the were up on the moon was they found a rock that the chemical analysis really well matched earth and that it showed that the two worlds are connected in in some way i mean the exact details are still being worked out but that is the that is the most agreed upon origin story for the moon and 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 the earth i mean we know that that the early earth was was a very the early early solar system was a very violent place i mean again mm. we see the moon and we see that it is just craters upon craters upon craters there's no part of the moon that isn't either craters or uh volcanic activity caused by impacts right. and if you look at the far side of the moon it's even it's even worse it's just like a mass of craters upon craters and so we know that that these space rocks have been raining down and so um was was that the the, he, the late heavy bombardment yeah that? yeah and that's and that's yeah. like early on in the solar system it's still like mm. 4.2 billion years ago so the solar system was very young when this was all happening and and that's is that what brought um uh, uh i don't know water gases and, and water and stuff to the yeah to i mean the, the origin of the earth's water is still again one of these things that it's back to that idea of it being a sports game like we don't know how this is going to play <laughs> out as the evidence continues to to gather um it's sort of like a scale that starts to tip in one direction or the other and so right now the the evidence is still mixed one possibility was that the inner solar system was just very rich in in volatile elements, water, things like that, which is which it was would would have been a surprise. We would have thought that the radiation from the sun would have blasted all of these this water and nitrogen and all the stuff out into space. Mm. But we're finding with these samples that are coming back from uh, Hayabusa two uh, and and others that that in fact there is water and other volatiles mixed in with these asteroids that are in the inner solar system. So it might be that in fact they they were able to maintain their their volatiles just under the surface. Um, so that's one possibility is that is that that it's sort of trapped. The water was all trapped inside these asteroids. And as each asteroid added to the to the earth, its water went onto the surface and it was able to to grow that way. Another possibility it's like a giant is, exploding capsule. Yeah, exactly, with a bunch of different stuff. Yeah, on right. located <laughs> yeah. inside of it. The other possibility is that the Earth, that comets, just thousands and thousands of comets over the age of the early universe, just delivered as they smashed into the planet, delivered water, one you know, one drop by one drop. Um, and the other yeah. possibility is just that the that the as the Earth had formed 
that the water hadn't been blasted away in the inner solar system. And so as the Earth grew, it was able to just draw in all of these elements before the sun was able to really kick in and get rid of it again. So yeah, it's, yeah. It, again, this is a great, you know, how will the story end? We don't know. Each, each discovery that gets made by an astronomer gives one more little brick of knowledge towards our, our understanding of where everything came from. It's, it, it does leave me a bit speechless. And it doesn't really work for a podcast, does it? Just to just to be quiet for an yeah, entire minute. Yeah, yeah I'm just gonna try I'm and... just gonna sit here in stunned silence for the next twenty <laughs> minutes. Yeah, enjoy. Yeah, because you're you, this is you're you're the first person I've spoken to about um, astronomy ever. So like literally, I'm not exa- you know I've had a relationship with a book, an audio book, a, a couple of magazines, and and like fucking TV program Brian Cox or whatever. But you're the first person yeah. I've ever. So it's this is very in you know. It is pretty gratuitous on my part, I'm afraid, but I'm sorry. But um, I'm just going to record what we're going to talk about now. We'll talk about... Um, well, you want to um, talk about perseverance? What, yeah, let's talk about perseverance, dude. Because, like, for me, that's so cool. Like, you know, I've just really, like, the past six months got into it. And guess what's happening? You know, oh, the, the, the this space rover and the freaking helicopter, whatever. Yeah. It's, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Like, what... What's why are we what, let's why are we doing it? Sure. Why are we going to why are we going to Mars? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the deepest, most fundamental questions that we could possibly ask is 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 there any other life in the universe? Did life only form on Earth, or did it form somewhere else as well? Did it form in other places in the solar system? Did it form on other stars? And if it did, if there is life elsewhere in the solar system, did it? did it form in the same way that earth life did or did it form in a completely different alien way or maybe we're even related that that at some point life from earth made it to mars or vice versa through meteorite impacts so so these are all open questions or is life or, or is mars completely dead of life and none to be found and so and so obviously this is such a fundamental question and so scientists have been trying to answer this question for a very long time and you know, we know back in the 1970s, the first, you know, some landers were sent to Mars, the Viking missions, and they actually did a lot of really great science, but they also had these experiments on board to try to find life on Mars. They would they, had, they would pick up a sample of Martian soil, add some water, add a little food, uh, give it some, and then sort of measure the gases that were coming off by the yeah. by the material. And they and they and the experiments said that there was something going on in the soil, but the results were very inconclusive. Some people said, "Oh, that's it, it's life." Other people said, "Nope, there's no way that's life." There's a other perfectly reasonable explanation. And so hmm. at that point, it was really clear that a much better investigation had to be made of Mars. And so back in the Starting with 19, I guess with Spirit and Opportunity in the early 2000s, you had these two rovers and their job was to just follow the story of water on Mars. Um, and so they were looking for just any kind of evidence that there was ever water on the surface of Mars. And they did. They found many different separate lines of evidence showing that, that Mars was wet at some point in the past. And so Curiosity, which is, which is a dramatically bigger, more comprehensive rover, went to answer the question, was water on the surface of Mars for a long period of time? And, mm. and Curiosity found that yes, indeed, water had been acting on Mars for, for thousands, if not millions of years, that there was the kinds of, of clues there. And so Perseverance is, to, is job is to take this question to the next level and say, were the conditions for life present on the surface of Mars? Were there any byproducts from life that could be detected on Mars? Is there any mm. life there today? And so uh, Perseverance is sort of built with these kinds of specific instruments and has, has now gotten to work and is now starting to explore. And one of the first things that it has to do is deploy this, this helicopter onto the surface of Mars called Ingenuity. And, you know, Ingenuity is is more of just a, a just a test to see can a helicopter fly in the thin atmosphere of Mars. I mean, the atmosphere on Mars is 1% the density of the atmosphere on Earth. So it's a pretty, uh, it's a very difficult place to fly an aircraft, but the gravity is lower. And so you can, they'll, they're going to spin the rotors on this helicopter much faster. And in the lower gravity, they think they can make the thing take off and fly around a little bit. 
And if that works, yeah. then maybe all future rovers will be equipped with some kind of flying machine that will assist them in in mapping out the landscape. I mean, you can imagine how useful that would be down the road if you could actually. Um, oh my God! Yeah, you yeah. could actually see what the terrain in front of you, and so. And, sorry, just from your perspective, do you think? Because obviously, we're going to be. I'll be long dead. You'll be long dead before. When do you really think that we can expect? To, to have astronauts have people building like, on Earth, back, on, um, on, on Mars. Mars. Like when will, when, when when will human we, beings go to Mars? I mean, not, I mean, in our lifetime, I presume, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I hope. I mean, I yeah, really I mean, if young, Elon Musk but, has his way, there's going to be people on Mars in about four years. Yeah, but I think what I mean is more like settlements. Do you know what I mean? Where we're really mm -hmm. starting to take a foothold well, I don't, in our own I mean, solar system. I don't know if we ever will. Um, mm. I think I can see us having some kind of science base on Mars in the same way that we have the International Space Station, the way we have a base mm. in Antarctica. We'll eventually have a base on the moon. We'll eventually have a base on Mars, maybe a base on an asteroid. So there will be scientific enterprises. But, but I can't imagine in the near future that anyone's going to want to live on Mars for any long time. I want to live on Mars. You I've say seen the that. Hold on. It's you great. That. But why are you not Matt living? Matt Damon could be my, main, my oh, neighbor. Well, why are you not? You know, if you want to experience that, why are you not living in the Canadian Arctic right now? Why are you not? <laughs> yeah, right? Like if you true. want to live in an extreme environment, you can go to places where there is no water, where it's brutally cold, where where there's very little to do but then you can also add if you want to really like kick it up to the next level um make sure that you only breathe from from some kind of supplemental oxygen and you spend most of your time in a hole in the ground because i'm gonna, I'm gonna do that from the radiation yeah so i mean i'm gonna do that then then you are ready to simulate <laughs> the experience of living on Mars. Um, the, yeah. the reality is- Quickest that way to get a divorce. Live, yeah, well, exactly, right? We <laughs> live in the, in, the, in the most perfect planet in the entire universe, which is Earth. We have, now, it's partly because we evolved to, to live in this, in this environment, um, but, but we have oceans and we have, we have forests and we have breathable air and we have- For now. And we have, well, sure, yeah, for now, yeah. I mean, who knows, yeah. we, might, we might turn Earth into <laughs> Venus and then we have to turn Mars into Earth, who knows. But, <laughs> but, but for now, so I think that just as people have tried to go and live in Antarctica, like, like you could, yeah. I mean, you, there have been attempts to live in places like Antarctica but they don't last very long because once the initial wonder of like, woo, we're building a society and Antarctica wears right. off and they're just, yeah. then there's the constant hunger Ooh, and penguin yeah. attacks, <laughs> and, you know, then you, then you just think, well, you know, maybe the, uh, the weather in England's not I'm so bad. Home. Maybe yeah, I'm, the Canadian, I mean, Canadian yeah, winter is not that rough. So yeah, I, I mean, it's crap watching my football team constantly lose, but I mean, yeah, you know, well, you could do that from anywhere. Yeah. Time delayed. But I think, so I, I really think that, that we need to find good reasons why we're going to want to live in those other places. And with our current level of technology, that just doesn't, it just doesn't exist. They're just, they're just awful. They're awful, awful, awful that, mm. that they are, they are trying to kill you all the time. And it's only through technology and hard work that you can just stave off inevitable death. And that's no way to live. It's a it's a <laughs> it's a it's a terrible way to live. So I I don't, I don't know, it sounds like a lot of my relationships that I've had over the years. Yeah, um so, so staving off staving off constant <laughs> yeah, constant death. Yeah, that's yeah. But um before before we call it a night, um or I don't know, mid afternoon for you. Um your so Saturn is is it is it correct that there's um like a hexagonal mm -hmm. shaped storm on mm -hmm. sitting right on top or whatever it is of 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 uh, Saturn and, yep. it, and no one knows why it's hexagonal yeah shaped. they don't they don't exactly know why they they have their theories but it has something to do with the the flow of the gases on and the resonance that comes as as things are rotating and interacting with each other. So we see similar shapes. You can go and if you go to like, they have these weird fluid tables at science centers that you can spin up and you get these interesting similar shapes. And so, you know, they have a, they have, they have some interesting theories about why that thing forms. 
But they're going like four thousand miles an hour, aren't they? Those winds or something. Yeah, I don't. I recall, I don't recall the exact speed, but it is fast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, I just can't. I can't figure out how that even works. You get to a a wall and then it stops. I don't know. There's, and there's, there's, there's something there's, with the way the resonance, the speed that it's going, the the way the 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 bands of storms are interacting with each other. You get yeah. these these standing waves that cause this weird shape. Yeah. Okay. And one one. Last question before we go. What if, and this has just come to me because I'm a genius, uh, slash really just not, uh, if you could have your ashes scattered on any, like, part of the universe, where would it be? Wow. I mean, probably Earth. I mean, you know, lots of places. No, no, but not Earth. But not not Earth, Earth. yeah. If you're you're, you're locking Earth away. um, Yeah. Then, then I would Lock love to away. be the first ashes on Titan. I think that'd be great. I'd love to go to Titan. I thought you might say that. Yeah. It's cool because you know when the when when the when the sun gets bigger, uh, you know, and, yeah. and your Melts. ashes are there, that you, yeah. you might come back. There you go. Right, and, and there's all these weird chemicals <laughs> on Titan. We don't know what kinds of wonders could happen <laughs> in the future. Yeah, exactly. All the building blocks for life are there. <laughs> Cool, man. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. Um, I mean, I'm going to tell people like wh- where they can find your show anyway, but um, is there any like any specific thing that you'd like people to go towards at this p- particular well, I, moment I think, time? You know, if you're into space and astronomy news, um, you know, you're mentioning the podcast, which is obviously great. But the the newsletter that I write every week, I think, is sort of the thing that I'm proudest of right now. So if you go to universetoday.com slash newsletter, you'll get this giant magazine that I write every Friday and and send out, which is really kind of every interesting story that's crossing my desk as I do my job as being the publisher of, of a space news website. God, you're busy. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Unbelievable. Right, okay, mate. On that note, I'll leave you to it. But thank you so much for your time, Fraser. And uh, maybe our paths will cross again sometime. See you.